All right, well, we're going to get into the Word. We're going to continue through the Gospel of John. And we are going to be in John chapter 17. So if you do have a Bible with you, please uh, feel encouraged to open that to John 17. That's where we'll spend the majority of our time here this morning. We're in the middle of, and we started this Friday night, we're in the middle of Jesus' prayer before uh, before. So let's, let's back up. After uh, what's commonly called the upper room discourse, Jesus' sort of farewell speech to his disciples and the passing of the baton of the work of ministry onto them, he stops and he prays. And, and he prays for himself. He prays for his, the believers that are there with him at the time. And he prays for all believers that will come throughout human history. And so we're right in the middle of that prayer. Friday night we looked at Jesus' prayer for himself Today we want to look at Jesus' prayer for his immediate disciples, so he specifically had in mind those, uh, as far as I can tell, 11 men that were there with him. Uh, Perhaps there were some others, but we know for sure those ones were there. And um, he has, he, he of course has in mind the context of what's going on. He's going away, he's leaving them, and uh, it's time for them to step up and to take over the ministry that he has begun. And so we'll see that reflected in his prayer. Let's go ahead and look at this prayer together. John chapter 17, starting in verse 6, and I will read all the way through 19. Jesus prayed, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given is from me, because I have given them the words you gave me. They received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name. That you, have, that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Let's pray. Jesus, as we ponder your words, this morning and, and reflect on the things that were on your heart and in your mind those final hours before going to the cross and so much that has happened since then. Here you sat in a room with just 11 men charged with the responsibility of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you were about to leave them but you had promised that the Holy Spirit would come and work through them, reminding of the, them of the things you taught them, empowering them to be your witnesses. 
And just as you prayed for their protection, you, you also prayed for the ability for them to accomplish the task that they were given. And we sit here today because your word succeeded through them. We have this faith passed down from generation to generation because you followed through on your promises. You sent the Holy Spirit and you guided these men and you empowered them and equipped them for the work of ministry and through them you turned the world upside down. So it's in wonder and awe of what you have done that we come seeking you today, asking you to speak to us by these same words. Speak to us and give us, give us eyes that see, ears that hear, hearts that receive, and the will to obey. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to make a couple of observations uh, first. And then I want to get into the content of, of Jesus, the specific things that Jesus is praying for them. As, as I just mentioned while we were praying there, this, this is the band of brothers that Jesus has brought together who will transform human history. If you think about it, if, if nothing else were to happen after Jesus' death, perhaps even his resurrection and ascension, if it, if it stopped there... If, people, if the people whom he had gathered and commissioned had not done the task that he had given them to do, none of this would be. No one would have written down what happened. No one would have passed it on. People would not have given their lives to see to it that this gospel was spread throughout human history. And now, of course, <clears throat> it's important to put the emphasis not necessarily on what they did, but what, what Jesus did through them. It was his Holy Spirit that, that empowered them and guided them and enabled them to do the things that they did. But in some mysterious way, God works through those who are willing to serve him. And so we thank God for their faithfulness. We thank God for his grace. But there's something even beyond that that I want to dwell on here this morning just for a few moments. So if you have the handout, let's go ahead and look at some of the things that I've given you by way of notes. <clears throat> the first one will kind of set the tone here for what I want to talk about, and that is that Jesus does not define his followers by their failures. You might be thinking, well, where does that come from? What does that have to do with this passage, right? What, is this just going to be some... Some self-help pep talk, you know, you know, put your past behind you. And, and no, this, this is actually Jesus' response to his followers. Where this comes from is if, you, if we jump back just for a moment to John chapter 16, he says towards the end of John 16 and verse 32, Jesus said to these same men, indeed an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. What he's saying is they're going to betray him. They're going to deny him. They're going to give up on him. They're going to save their own butts and get away from Jesus as he's arrested and put on trial. In other words, they're going to fail him immeasurably. That's pretty bad. If to... To have lived 
and, and walked with and, and experienced Jesus for somewhere around three years. To, I mean, these, these men had the most significant access and exposure to the God of the universe, perhaps of any, more, more so than anyone else in human history. I mean, you could make, you know, there was Moses met with God face to face, and there were other times when, when God significantly revealed himself to human beings. But here, they're at least up there in the top tier, okay? These men have walked with Jesus. If anybody is going to be faithful in response to uh, experience with or encounters with God, it should be these guys. That should have been enough to ensure that they would stay faithful to the end. And yet Jesus says very plainly, and it will soon come to pass, just as he predicted, each one of them will be scattered to his own home. So in light of that, how, how, put yourself in Jesus' shoes. I wouldn't say to do that very often. <laughs> but put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Your best friends, you, for, by, by, by some divine grace, you have this foreknowledge that your best friends are going to betray you. They're going to deny that they knew you. They're going to leave you to the wolves. They're, they're going to backtrack on every promise that they've ever made. And now you're standing there, you're, you're talking to them, and you're aware of this, even if they're not. What is your attitude towards them? How are you viewing them? What are you thinking? How are you seeing them? Probably differently than Jesus sees his disciples. What do I mean by that? In John chapter 17, verse 6, he says, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. They have kept your word. Which one is it? Is it their unfaithfulness to stand by Jesus at his arrest in his hour of greatest need? Or is it their faithfulness to his word? Which one does he define them by? Which, one does, which lens is he looking at them through? Their failures or their faithfulness? He doesn't define his followers by their failures, does he? I think that's significant in a world in which we're so eager to cancel everybody. We're so eager to dig up some old tweet or, or, or some affair that someone had. We're, we're so eager to, to find something to bring someone down. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It, it, that is, this is not how we treat each other. We do not define other people by their faithfulness, but by their greatest failures. Don't we? That's how we judge people. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that heinous acts of sin don't matter. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place to say this person is unrepentant. This person uh, consistently does evil. And that that should become perhaps the dominant view of, of them. Because there have been, there, there are and continue to be, I mean, significant, sinful, heinous acts of 
rebellion against God and his creation. But let me give you some examples. Think about who are some of the heroes of the Bible? Who are some of the faithful men and women of the Bible? How about Abraham? Abraham is consistently held up. He he is the father of faith. He's the one who's set forth as the example of believing God and taking God at his word. But what about that time? What about that time that Abraham lied about his wife? He essentially prostituted her out because he didn't have enough faith to trust God in that moment. What about that? Is Abraham defined by his failures or his faithfulness? What about Moses? Moses is pretty well liked in the Bible, right? What about that time he committed murder? What about that time he lost his temper so badly that God actually kept him from entering into the promised land as he was leading God's people? Are we going to define him by his failures or by his faithfulness? What about David? David, a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. Except for when that time he was after Bathsheba's heart or whatever it was that he was after. And what about how he responded after that, how he tried to cover up his sexual sin by committing murder, essentially? Does that sound like a man after God's own heart? The point I'm trying to make is that all of us are sinners. All of us fail God, oftentimes in miserable ways, and yet he is so merciful and so kind so as not to define us by our failures, but to see us through the lens of faithfulness to his word. That's grace. That's kindness. That is a merciful and gracious God. That's not to say that God in any way, shape, or form treats sin lightly. He does not treat sin lightly. God crucified his son because of sinfulness, because of of acts and deeds of sin, because of our failures. This is the last thing I, I intend for this to be is an excuse to go on sinning. But at the same time, you need to have the confidence that Jesus does not define you by your worst failures. He defines who you are by the faith that you have placed in him and in his word. We see that with the first disciples. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let's go ahead and fill in the the second set of blanks so that I can finish this point. Jesus does not define his followers by their failures. Instead, his followers are defined by their belief in him. Let's look at, let me give you a second to fill that in. Instead, his followers are defined by their belief in him. We're going to look at verse 7, verses 7 and 8. And I'll just read verse 6. This probably won't be on the screen, but just for for context here. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Again, every time I read that, just the irony of, of what he's saying in light of what they're about to do. Then he says in verse 7, that now they know that everything you have given is from me because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them 
and have known for certain that I came from you, they have believed that you sent me. This is what they're defined by. They were given the word, they received the word, and they believed the word. They were given the word, they received the word, and they believed the word. Belief is the defining characteristic of Christ followers. Belief is the defining characteristic of all who will come after Jesus. Perfect, unfailing belief? No. Belief that never betrays itself? I hope not, because that means none of us are in. Nonetheless, a a persevering, a consistent over the course of time belief in who Jesus is and in what he came to do. Having been given the word, they received the word and they believed the word. That's what Jesus's follow that's how Jesus's followers are defined. By their belief in him. We one of our core values uh, as a church we have four and one of them is grace-based daily discipleship. And the reason we emphasize that it's grace-based is because we want to set you up with the expectation that you will not be a perfect disciple. We, we want you to understand the reality of the ongoing battle with sin as something that you're going to lose at times. Again, I want to say, and the Bible says, this is no excuse to sin. This is no, well, if I'm going to fail, sometimes I might as well fail in the way I like. You know, do the, do the things that are fun to me because it's grace, right? That's not what we're saying. But discipleship is, is this process of sort of stumbling forward, trying to become more like Christ, trying to become more faithful to him, trying to be, try, try, trying to, to finish this race as well as we possibly can, all the while it's by his spirit and by his grace. It's not by the perfect obedience of his people. Not only did his disciples fail at the time of his, his, uh, his, his arrest and crucifixion, they would go on failing. They would still make mistakes. You know, I've, I've heard people preach sermons about Peter and, you know, before the Holy Spirit came, Peter denied Jesus three times, but then after the Holy Spirit came, he was this, this bold, faithful witness. And then I think back to the time when, when Paul calls him out long after he had received the Spirit, and Paul calls him out for being afraid of the Jewish believers and compromising the gospel. And I, and I think, man, here's a, a Spirit-filled, one of the original 12, apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's still making mistakes. He's still, fel- he's still sinning. But that's okay. Jesus does not define us by our failures. Instead, he defines us by our belief in him. Belief in him looks sometimes like repentance. Belief in him is the the practice of acknowledging our need for him and coming back to the cross, receiving his grace and his mercy for the umpteenth time. So, that's just something that, that, that Jesus sort of 
that, that caught my attention through what Jesus says. In the context of him saying they're going to betray him, they're going to leave him alone, he then goes on to speak to the father as if these, these are the head of the class students. They're, they're the straight A students. They never get it wrong. And, and so that jumped out at me. And, and I think the reason why that jumps out at us becomes more clear as we keep going. The next thing on the handout is this. Let me just recap the first two. Jesus does not define his followers by their failures. Instead, his followers are defined by their belief in him. And this is the surprising thing. And this is how he is glorified. And this is how he is glorified. In verse 9, Jesus says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours. And everything you have is mine. And I am glorified in them. Jesus is glorified in these failing followers of Christ. He's glorified in the men who are about to betray him. And what he's, what the, the reason that he's glorified in them is because failure is expected. That's what human beings have always done. What brings him glory is that human beings who are known for such failure still believe in him and persist in, in following and obeying him. And by doing so, bring him glory. How do we glorify God? We glorify God by being disciples. We glorify God by following Jesus, by believing in him, by receiving the word, believing the word, and obeying the word. Jesus was glorified in them, and Jesus is glorified in us. I don't want to get too far ahead to application, but the point of all of this, the point of looking at how Jesus prayed for them, is to, to note how we ought to live in response to that. And one of the obvious things here is that if he's glorified in those guys then he is likewise glorified in us. Furthermore, if he, can, if he can bring about such change in the world by those guys, if, if he can affect the world that we live in through just 11 willing disciples, how much more could he do with a group that's many times that size like Redemption Church? But that's getting to application. Let's continue to think about the truths here. Jesus does not define his followers by their failures. Instead, his followers are defined by their belief, and this is how he is glorified in them. Do you love Jesus? Believe in who, that he is who the Bible says he is and that he did what the Bible says he did? Do you believe he's the son? Thank you. <laughs> Do you believe he's the son of God who came into this world to save sinners like us? then he is glorified in you. Think about that. What do I have to do with God's glory? Jesus receives glory and he displays glory through his own actions. 
indeed. By, by coming and living a faithful life, by dying on the cross, even, even praise such in the beginning of this chapter. He talks about how he has glorified the Father and how now the Father is going to glorify him through his death and resurrection and ascension. And perhaps he has in mind the, the, the thousands of years of building his kingdom on earth and expanding his people through the gospel message. He receives glory through his own actions, through his own character, through his own being. And he receives glory through faithful believers in Christ. And by faithful, I mean, this, maybe that's not the right word to use. By faithful, I mean persevering. I have in mind that there will be many failures along the way. That's what I mean by faithful. Faithful, unfaithful believers in Christ. Persevering. Those, those who, who don't give up. Those who continue to, to hold on to faith. Continue to hold on to what Jesus has done. And making atonement for their sins. And continuing to believe and to press on. He's glorified in that. He's glorified in us. That ought to give you a different perspective on your life. (laughs) If your life is now somehow intertwined with the glory of God, if your life is not just about, you know, I remember, you know, we, we think about, I think, making the people around us proud. That might be one of the greatest motivations that we can experience in life. When we have somebody that we love who believes in us and we want to make them proud, we want to be faithful for their sake. That's, I think, one of the greatest motivations in life. I remember Jerome Bettis at his Hall of Fame speech. Uh, if you don't know Jerome Bettis' story, it's a, it's a pretty uh, inspiring story. He grew up uh, so, sort of a, a poor man in, in Detroit, and uh, but he had this gift of playing football and became one of the greatest running backs in, in Steelers history. In his Hall of Fame speech, he said he remembers going off to college and his dad, just this blue-collar, working-class man, said, son, I don't have much to give you, but I give you a good name. And Drum talks about how that motivated him throughout his career, that he wanted to make his dad proud. That's, that's one of the, whether you recognize it or not, one of the greatest motivators that, that we have in our lives, wanting to make the people who believe in us proud, the people who are depending upon us. There is a greater purpose to your life even than that an infinitely greater purpose to your life. The glory of God is at stake in your life. I don't mean to imply that if you screw it up, God gets no glory, because <laughs> he's going to be glorified. But for, this, for the sake of the purpose of your life, in, in some regard, the the success or failure of your life will be measured by, did you glorify God? Did you glorify Him with your life? 
Jesus said everything to the Father, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. What's at stake for the disciples is, is so much more than their reputation. It's the reputation of Jesus himself. If his followers go out and, and fail to complete the task, it's Jesus' reputation that's at stake so much more than theirs. It's his glory that's at stake. How do I know that's true? Name the 11 remaining apostles for me. Can anybody do it? I can't. <laughs> it's not their glory that is at stake, is it? If so, we would perhaps remember their names. It's Jesus' glory. And your life is no different. Believe it or not, your life is about the glory of Jesus. Your life, it's your greatest purpose in life is that you glorify Jesus Christ. Isn't that something to think about? Does that change the way you plan and prioritize and think about that? I hope it does. And because of this, you'll see this is the next thing on the handout. Jesus prays for their protection. Because he is glorified by our, by our lives, amongst other reasons. Obviously, he, apart from all of that, Jesus loves his disciples. He loves you and he loves us. But, but in, in some part, at least to some degree, he, he prays this because of that. He prays for their protection. Verse 11. Let me read 11 through 13. Verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your, by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. When Jesus prays, protect them, he's, he's praying to the Father to protect them, not from anything bad that might happen to them, Though that would be nice. That's, that's how we often pray for protection. Lord, don't let anything bad happen to us. Well, perhaps what we should pray is, Lord, don't, don't let anything happen to us that would take away from our glorifying you. If the goal is just for them to be safe in the way that we think of safeness, then Jesus' prayer failed miserably. Because they all died and most of them died horrible deaths for preaching the gospel. So when he prays for protection, he's praying for a different type of protection. And the answer is right here in the scripture. Protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. He's it's a little bit, at least in my opinion, a little bit difficult to discern exactly what Jesus means by 
that they may be one as we are one. I think immediately, well, I'll just speak for myself. Immediately my thoughts go through, he's speaking of their unity. He wants them to be unified in message, perhaps unified in their theology is the way we think of it today. You know, a lot of times we think about, oh, the church, is, the church isn't unified. The church doesn't all believe the same thing and, and, and all of that. And that bothers some people more than others. But I think that when he says that they may be one as we are one, and he speaks of, you know, I was with them, and while I was with them, I, I protected them, but now I'm coming to you, and he wants their joy to be completed. There seems to be, a, at least in some part, Jesus is referring more to them being one with him, them being one in terms of being connected to this eternal life that he came to give. We spoke a little bit about that Friday night, how Jesus came to give eternal life. He came to let us partake, to enable us to partake in, to participate in his eternal life. And, and I think that at least has to come into play in how we understand what Jesus is praying when he prays for protection. Protect them from being separated from the source of eternal life. Protect them from going, going away from the faith. Protect them from, from, from the failure of disbelief. Keep them in us, Father. Keep them, keep them in perseverance. Though they'll fail in just a few short hours, and though they'll fail again and again at other times, keep them here. <coughs> keep them safe in the belief in the gospel. While I was with them, I was protecting them. <clears throat> now I'm coming to you. How does he protect us? He protects us by sending the Spirit to come and to grant us belief. The belief that keeps us as part of the eternal life that he came to give. All right, one more point. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Now I missed a note here that I wanted to make sure. So there's... That, that unity or that oneness, oneness is a better word. Unity, I think, when I think of unity, I think of um, like the same belief, the same doctrine, right? And that, that's maybe not a biblical way of thinking of unity. And so for fear that maybe you think the same way, let me use the word oneness. Oneness, and by oneness I mean that, that connection, that close connection to the Godhead and to the source of life. So within the, within the Godhead, there's three distinct persons, right? They're not all the same. They're distinct from one another. But yet there's oneness, if you will, unity, right? And in that oneness, there's joy in, in him. And that's what Jesus prays for, that we be a part of that, that we be a part of the oneness of, of the eternal Godhead. I, I know that gets, starts to make your brain hurt real fast to try to think about all that. But that's the life that he invites us into and as he's praying for these 11 men. And he's looking out over the next few decades of their lives and knowing how important the task that is being entrusted to them is. And knowing that the, the reputation of his name, the display and spreading of his glory is as much as 
it can with human beings is going to depend on these 11 men being faithful. He prays, Father, keep them, keep them in us. Protect them. Let them be one as we are one. But then, and this is the last thing you see on the handout, Jesus doesn't pray that they be taken from the world and its troubles, but they be set apart and sent out to do his work in the world. He doesn't pray that they be taken from the world and its troubles, but that they be set apart and sent out. He's setting them apart and sending them out. Let's let's look at verse 14 through 19. Picking up in verse 14, Jesus says, I've given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Okay, sanctify means to be set apart. So he's, he's praying... Not that they be taken from the world. Have you ever wondered why, after, after we place our faith in Christ, receive eternal life, why Jesus doesn't just take us to heaven? Wouldn't it be nice that the moment you believe that's the end of your suffering, that's the end of any, any pain that you experience on earth? I mean, what, what else is there left to do? What is the point of staying here on earth? Why does he leave us in this sometimes miserable place for so long after we believe. It's because his goal for your life is not just that you believe, but that you obey. Believing is just the beginning of the relationship. Believing is just the beginning of the race. What he, what he intends for the rest of your life is that you be set apart for the gospel and that you be sent out into the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. This was true of the original 11 uh, disciples that Jesus is praying for, and this is certainly true of us. Jesus does not desire to take us from the world, but he asks the Father that we, that he protect, Protect us in the world from the evil one, that he keep us in him. We're no longer of this world. We began our lives of this world. We began our lives as, as no different than everybody else, as part of this world and as part of the rebellion against God, but having been saved by his grace and by his mercy through believing in what Jesus Christ did, we are no longer of this world, just like he's not of this world. So then he says, sanctify them by the truth. In other words, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. You have been set apart by the word of God as a believer in Jesus Christ. He has set you apart. You're not supposed to be just like everybody else. 
Your life isn't supposed to be lived just the same way everybody else lives their lives. You are to be sanctified. Boy, that sounds good, huh? Sanctified. You're to be set apart. Set apart by the truth. But not just set apart, but set apart to be sent out to do his work. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Then Jesus says this. He says, I sanctify myself. Does not sound odd for Jesus to say, I sanctify myself? But when we understand that by sanctify, he's using that word here to mean set apart. He's set himself apart for what he's about to go do so that I've sanctified myself for them so that they also may be sanctified. He's set apart for. He's going to the cross to, to take upon himself God's just and righteous wrath for all of our sins. That's what Jesus set himself apart to do. He's done that for his disciples. He's done that for those who would follow him so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. In other words, becoming a Christian doesn't, isn't like a ticket into this plush, easy, happy, everything always goes right life. I don't know. I mean, I, have, I guess I have my theories. I don't know why so many preachers preach that. The insanity of taking the the clear and plain teaching of the Bible and somehow contorting it into God just wants you to be blessed in all things. He just wants you to be happy. He wants you to be healthy and wealthy and, and all, of, all of these distortions of the truth, the, the absurdity of coming up with that message from this book baffles my mind. If faithfulness equals comfort and abundance of worldly wealth and health and all of that, what went wrong with these 11 men? Why were their lives so miserable by earthly standards? But that wasn't their goal. Their goal wasn't to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Their goal was to be faithful and in doing so, experience the joy that Jesus promised. There's a greater joy than the joy that comes from having a lot of money in your bank account, having, being in good health, getting a promotion. There's a greater joy than all of those worldly things can offer. And it, it's the joy of being set apart and sent out. It's the joy of being a part of God's eternal plan to glorify the Son through His coming, His, His, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and then through the sending out of His followers into the world. And so I want to invite you to experience that kind of joy by viewing your life as being set apart for the gospel and obeying the call to be sent out to do His will. 
these 11 men would change the world. How much more can God do through us? They didn't even have the internet. They didn't even have airplanes. They didn't, they didn't have the ability to connect with the world the way that, that we do today. It's one of the reasons why I keep emphasizing the impact that we can make around the world through things like these partnerships in Malawi and our, our partnerships um, with some missionary partners around the world. Did you know we're, we're supporting missionaries that are responsible for translating the Bible into languages that it's never been translated into in Southeast Asia? There, there are thousands of people groups on the earth today who still don't have the Bible in a language that they know. We can change that. We are changing that. One translation at a time. And other believers around the world are doing the same. There are, there are as we've talked about recently, there are people, there are believers in Malawi who don't have access to safe, clean water. And they spend the majority of their lives going after water that's neither clean nor safe, but yet it's all that they have. We can change that. We are changing that. In 2022, there'll be two new villages in Malawi, Africa, who have clean water wells because of none other than the people in this room on Sundays. That's incredible. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the beginning of what God can do through us. Make no mistake about it. He's doing it. And he's doing it for his glory. But he's calling us to be set apart and sent out. Will you obey? Will you be faithful to organize your life around that truth? Will you make your life about the glory of God? You probably don't have to make major changes in some of the areas you're thinking about. You probably don't have to quit your job. You probably don't have to move somewhere else. It's really just becoming a disciple in what you're already doing. It's, it's using the life that you already have to count for eternity and to count for the gospel. It will, you will, what you will have to change is how you spend your money, how you spend your time, the priorities that you set for your family. You will have to change things. But you don't necessarily have to move to Africa. We can change the world with the gospel from where we're at right now. Because Jesus prayed for his followers to be set apart and sent out. And it's been working for the last 2,000 years. You have heard the gospel and you believe in Jesus because of the obedience of generations of Christ followers just like you and I. The question is, will the next generation have the same benefit because of our obedience?